0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: This thing that we call salvation is not to be trifled with. It's not something that we can take lightly. This is the most serious thing in all the world. And it's so serious that we have to understand that if our hearts have become hardened and if we've become dull and if we're drifting away from the Lord, that's a extremely serious situation. Today
0: on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Hebrews. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Hebrews chapter 6 in a message titled, Going On to Maturity.
1: Now here's Pastor Brian here we are at uh, the sixth chapter of Hebrews and right up front, let me just let you know that this is probably the most difficult chapter in the whole New Testament and so uh, it's a challenge before us today to really you know get hold of what the sixth chapter is talking about so we're going to do our best to do that but The background, if you will remember, the background is that the writer of this letter, he's exhorting his readers, these Jewish believers, he's been rebuking them for their lack of spiritual progress, and he is exhorting them to move forward into spiritual maturity. And so let me pick up and let's back up just a bit. Let me read from verse 12 of chapter 5 on through the second verse of chapter 6, and that'll connect us with the passage and the the context here. So he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. And so we see there in the latter part of the fifth chapter, there's the rebuke. For by the time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And as we looked before, because the dullness of their heart, instead of growing and progressing and maturing, they had stagnated really and and were starting to drift back. And so he is now calling them to move forward out of that position. So as we come to chapter six, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles, let us go on to perfection. The word perfection here could be translated maturity. So this is the whole objective of the uh, author here is that they would go on to maturity. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to mature in our faith. And we mature in our faith by taking heed, as we considered recently. We take heed to God's word. We, we apply it to our lives. We let it have its place in our lives. So in order to go on to maturity, he says, we have to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. And he gives an example of what he would refer to as the elementary principles. And they are six things, repentance, faith, baptism, empowering, resurrection, and eternal judgment. So these are some of the fundamentals of the faith or the basics or the or the foundational things and of course the foundational things are important they're foundational they're they're the fundamentals and in one sense we never outgrow these things but we do get established in them so we don't have to keep going over them again and again and again because we're not getting it right that's the that's the problem here with these guys they were stuck they were in um, an arrested state of development. They were not developing as they should. And so they had to just keep going over the basics over and over and over again. Now, this is not uh, an exhaustive list of the foundational truths of the Christian faith uh, but these particular things obviously had relevance to this group of Jewish believers. So, you know, just why he focuses in on these particular things, we're not quite sure. Obviously, there there was something that was relevant for them. But real quickly, let's just look at what he's talking about here as the elementary things. Number one, repentance. So, repentance is a fundamental thing. It's a basic. Uh, foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, repentance from dead works, or as the NIV says, repentance from works that produce death. So this is where everything starts. In becoming a Christian, I repent. I turn from those works that result in death, and I turn toward Christ. So there's no real coming to Christ apart from repentance, because in coming to Christ, you're turning away from sin and you're turning to him. So any idea that you could actually you know, just come to Jesus and still you know, keep all of your sins is the wrong idea. Repentance implies that we're turning from our sin, turning to Christ. And then he says, faith, faith toward God. Now, I I think for them, especially, and and even for people in our generation, he says specifically faith toward God. You know, with these people, it would be easy for them to have faith in a system. We talk about their uh, trading relationship for ritual. And so their faith very well uh, could have easily just been in the system itself. And just like today, people can have uh, their faith is in their religious system or their faith is in their denomination. Their faith is in the fact that they you know, have been associated with this church since they were a child or, or something like that. But true faith is faith toward God, personal faith in God, foundational thing. So repentance, faith, and then he mentions baptism and the laying on of hands. And the laying on of hands probably is a reference to uh, the empowering of the Spirit. So baptism is our place of publicly identifying with Christ. Having hands laid on us is that place of being empowered by the Spirit uh, for service to God. And then he also mentions the resurrection from the dead, a fundamental thing to remind us that this life is not all there is. There's another world coming. There's another life coming. We have eternal life through Christ, the resurrection from the dead. But we also have to keep in mind that there is a judgment. And so again, his point is, okay, these are the foundational things. These are the the basic things. We all need to be established in these things, but then we need to move beyond them, not Setting them aside, but keeping them there as the foundation, but then adding onto these other things more and more of our understanding of the Christian life. And so he says, let's move beyond these elementary principles, moving on into perfection or maturity. But then he says this if God permits, if God permits. What an interesting thing, because he's he's saying to them, look, you need to grow. But then he sort of says, but you can only grow if God permits. Now, why would he say that? That's a question that we need to consider. And I think the answer is this. He wants them to realize how dangerous their spiritual condition really is. And something that all of us need to realize as well is, you know, this thing that we call salvation is not to be trifled with. It's not something that we can take lightly. It's not something that we can just sort of move in and out of, you know, at will or, you know, with every whim or, or whatever. This is the most serious thing in all the world. And it's so serious that we have to understand that if our hearts have become hardened and if we've become dull and if we're drifting away from the Lord, that's an extremely serious situation. And so I believe that the reason he says, if God permits, I think he's wanting them to stop and think about the seriousness of the issue and about the importance of their relationship with God and realize it's not something that I can play fast and loose with. It's something that I've got to be dead serious about and fully committed to. And so he goes on, if God permits, and then he says this, he says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, verses 4 through 6 are the really difficult verses in the chapter. And like I said, they're some of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible. And as a matter of fact, as I was preparing to teach, I was asking myself, okay, now why did I want to teach Hebrews on Sunday? Because... uh, This is really difficult, difficult stuff. Um, But we we need to do our best to try to understand what he's talking about here. So here's the question. Pertains to verses 4 through 6, the description that he gives here. The question is, who and what is he describing? Who's he talking about? And what is he describing here? Let me read to you again what he describes. He's talking about those who were once enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. He's describing them, but then he says, and if they fall away or falling away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Who and what is he talking about? Well, generally speaking, there are two Perspectives on this, and there there are others that are a little more nuanced, but I'm not going to bother to go into those. But but the two perspectives are simply: on the one hand, uh, there are those who would say, "Well, he's obviously warning believers about the possibility of losing their salvation," and then there's the other position that would say, "Well." he's certainly warning people about ultimately not being saved, but they can't really be believers because a believer can't lose his salvation. So he's warning people who are, uh, they have an outward appearance of being a believer, but the truth of the matter is um, they're really not deep in their hearts. So those are the two positions. He's, he's, He's speaking to believers who might lose their salvation or people that appear to be believers who in the end will prove not to be. So which is the correct interpretation? Now, I'm going to give you my interpretation, my my position, and uh, I, I think it's correct. Therefore, I hold the position, <laughs> but not everybody will agree with me on this. So, um, but I believe that the author is talking here about what we would call a, a pseudo-believer, somebody who appears to be a believer, but isn't really necessarily a believer deep in their hearts. And as hard as it is to imagine that such people exist, they do. But let me, let me give you the two reasons why I believe he's referring to a pseudo-believer. Reason number one is... If you were talking about a true believer, you would have a true believer losing their salvation. And I think that the bigger picture of scripture does not allow for that. The bigger picture of scripture. And the problem that I find sometimes when I'm studying and reading through commentaries on Hebrews is that people forget that Hebrews is one epistle in the midst of many. So you can't just take what... Hebrews seems to say and interpret it, you have to interpret it in light of the, of the bigger picture of scripture. I have to understand what Hebrews is saying in light of Romans and Ephesians and uh, 1 Peter and 1 John and all of these different things, the gospels. I, I have to interpret it in light of that. And my conviction is that the bigger picture of scripture does not allow for a true believer to lose their salvation. Let me give you four passages real quickly that support that position. First of all, in John's gospel, the 10th chapter, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said this. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. To me, that's crystal clear. It's unequivocal. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. If you have eternal life, then eternal life is by definition eternal. It doesn't, it's not temporary, it's eternal. So Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And then he adds, they shall never perish. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, he wrote this in Romans 8, 29, and 30. And, and he's kind of walking through this kind of process from from god's point of view of a person a person's salvation for whom he foreknew that's where it starts he also predestined whom he predestined these he also called whom he called these he also justified and whom he justified these he also already past tense has glorified so if we're believers in jesus today we are in this process, we're in the justified place. But notice that he says that he uses the same terminology to speak of what we would know as the future glorification. He speaks of it as though it's already done. So I conclude from that, those who are justified presently, who were previously called and who were predestined and who were foreknown, they will also be glorified. That's a promise that uh, God's going to get us ultimately to heaven. Then Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 and 14, Paul, again, writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, you were sealed with the Holy spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So for those who put their faith in Christ, God puts a seal on us and his seal signifies ownership. So we become the property of God, and it's the Holy Spirit who seals us. He's the Holy Spirit of promise, and notice he is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit guarantees that we will reach, ultimately, our inheritance. And then one more passage taken from John's first epistle, and John is speaking about the kind of thing that the author is is alluding to here. John speaking about people who leave the faith. And listen to what he says in his first epistle, second chapter, nineteenth verse. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So first reason why I believe that this is a Pseudo-believer being described is because they go out from us, and that cannot be said of a true believer. A true believer cannot lose their salvation. That's the first reason. The second reason is that, now, here's the argument. Some people say that the description here, once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift. Become partakers of the Holy Spirit, taste of the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. Some would argue and say, "Look, there's no way that that could be true of someone who's not a true believer. There's no way that somebody could have these kinds of experiences with the Holy Spirit, but yet in the end, ultimately, not really be saved." But my response to that would be: All that is said here could be said of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot went, had all of these things that are that are described here on the surface. He was, of course, there with the Lord. He had that enlightening that caused him to begin to follow Jesus. He tasted the heavenly gift and um, the word of God. Of course, he sat and he listened to Jesus. He experienced the powers of the age to come. There's no reason for us to doubt that Judas went out in power just like the other disciples did and ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet, the truth of the matter is that Judas never. Truly was a believer. He never really was. Jesus said at a certain point, speaking to those 12 men who were his apostles, Judas was one of them, he says, I I have chosen you 12, and yet one of you is a devil. Judas was never a believer. Judas was not a believer who lost his salvation. Judas was never a believer, according to Jesus. He had always hidden deep in his heart. Nobody else could see it, but God could see it. He'd always hidden deep in his heart, his own agenda, an agenda that was contrary to the will of God. So because of these two things that a believer cannot lose their salvation and Judas could fit what it says here, uh, I don't believe that the, the passage is talking about Christians losing their salvation. I believe that the passage is warning us against having this work of the Holy Spirit that is so profound in seeking to draw us to Christ. But in the end, instead of coming to Christ as the Spirit desires us to, we resist that and we turn away from Christ or somebody does that. And I think the illustration that he gives makes that clear. So look at the next two verses. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So you see the picture? Here's the ground. The rain is coming upon it. And God is expecting it to bear good fruit, but in some cases it doesn't. And that ground that doesn't bear good fruit, it is near to being cursed. And so I think the picture is here's a human heart, the spirit of God, the work of the spirit is to testify of Jesus, to convict us of sin, to reveal who God is. All of those kinds of things are like the rain coming down But for the person who fails to properly respond, and instead of surrendering and and giving themselves over to Christ and following him, they have these experiences, but then they turn back. He speaks here of a person like that. It's impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. And I don't think the impossibility for renewal to repentance is on God's side. I don't think God's saying, no, there's certain people I'm not going to let repent. I think what he's describing is a person who resists the Holy Spirit to that extent could never repent.
0: And now let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics.
1: There are certain Christian books that we would refer to today as classics, books that have just stood the test of time and generation after generation of Christians have benefited from them. There is a book that is recently published called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland. And, you know, many people are already saying that this is a Christian classic. Now, Gentle and Lowly is taken from the passage in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says of himself that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so this book is looking at Jesus through that lens. And we're going to find out that Jesus is much more gracious, much more patient, much more loving than we ever imagined him to be. So this is a fantastic book. And I highly recommend it, especially for anyone who has a tendency to feel like they failed God, they've let him down, you're not sure about God's love for you, this book is going to, I think, forever give you the right perspective on the heart of Jesus for his children. So check it out, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortlund. Again, this
0: month's resource is a book titled Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. You can order the book Gentle and Lowly by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you